0: Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. We are proud to have Microdose sponsoring our mission. As we depart on a West Coast tour this spring, we know that we will see a lot of options out there, but we are always impressed by the consistency provided by Microdose. We always know how we will feel. They are perfect to ease the stress of flying, correcting jet lag, or relaxing after a long day of meetings and recording. Microdose gummies are made using the highest quality organic ingredients possible. They are vegan-friendly, gluten-free, and infused with organ-grown berries. Get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com, promo code Mandy. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com promo code Mandy for 30% off and free shipping. microdose.com promo
1: code Mandy. You know, that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere online in store on social media and beyond. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash crimes, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash crimes to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash crimes. I think I
0: know who might have killed Maggie and Paul Murdoch. And while these details are hard to fathom, and it's been a long time coming, Alec Murdoch should be facing murder charges soon, and this week, we should be closer than ever to the truth of what happened on June 7th, 2021. My name is Mandy Matney. I have been investigating the Murdoch family for more than three years now. This is the Murdoch Murders Podcast with David Moses and Liz Farrell. So, we're back, and as always, when we take time off, it has been a baptism by fire coming home. I won't lie and say that it was a huge surprise coming home to news that murder charges were finally coming against Alec Murdoch. About a month ago, we were told that the Colleton County Grand Jury was set to hear evidence against Alec Murdoch and the double homicide of Maggie and Paul Murdoch this July. We were initially told it was going to happen last week. So Liz, David, and I packed up our podcast studio and were fully prepared to break the news while on vacation. Then, while living my best life, frolicking around a Jamaican pool with a cold pineapple drink in hand, I got a text from my best source in this case, saying something along the lines of, enjoy your vacation, it isn't happening this week. So the universe gave us the break that we really needed, and on Tuesday morning, Will Folks of Fitznews.com got the green light to publish the big news. Agents from the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division, also known as SLED, as you all know by now, are scheduled to present evidence against Alec Murdoch in the double homicide of Maggie and Paul Murdoch this Thursday, July 14th, 2022. And that is a big deal. But like we said, this news has been a long time coming. We all feel like we've been waiting forever for this. So on Tuesday afternoon, I spoke with Will Folks about the breaking news.
2: I think it's something everybody knew was coming. I mean, over the last few months, we've been reporting and you've been reporting on all the evidence that's been accumulating. In fact, we had law enforcement sources telling us as recently as June that there's a mountain of evidence uh, implicating Alec Murdoch in these killings. And so I don't think today was any surprise i think it's just the timing and certainly the fact that this was you know almost immediately confirmed by the family confirmed by his attorneys you know i think that just goes to the credibility of that network of sources that both fitznews and the murdoch murders podcast have built up over the last few years covering this story
3: Shortly before Will broke the story about the upcoming grand jury presentation Tuesday morning, law enforcement had informed the families about what was coming. Within two hours, legacy media began publishing their own reports. We knew they could not have gotten the story from the same sources we did, so we immediately figured it was coming from the Murdoch camp, which is exactly right. John Marvin Murdoch told the Post and Courier that he had been visited by SLED. Jim Griffin finally put himself on the record on Tuesday afternoon, telling Fox Carolina that Alec plans to ask for a bond hearing so that law enforcement will have to lay out the evidence against him. I don't want to dwell too much on this, but definitely want you guys to understand that when we point out how legacy media does this stuff, it's because they have been a huge part of why the Murdochs were so protected for so long. They continue to use the very same sources who obviously want to spin the story in a way that allows them to keep and grow their power. So... Back to John Marvin. Why did Sled feel the need to alert him and Ellick's other siblings about the upcoming charges? This is a good question. South Carolina has a victim's bill of rights, which includes a victim's right to be reasonably informed about an arrest being made in their case. But is John Marvin a victim? I don't mean to minimize this pain here because I know he cared about Maggie and deeply loved Paul. To our mind though, the direct victims in this are Maggie's family and Buster. To alert the Murdoch family to Ellick's impending indictment seems really tricky to us because once again, law enforcement seems to be factoring in a family that just over a year ago they were investigating for obstructing justice in the boat crash investigation. This is also a family who doesn't seem to want to acknowledge its own power while doing everything they can to preserve their legacy and wealth. Then again, maybe John Marvin's role as Maggie's personal representative and Randy Murdoch's role as Paul's personal representative puts them in the victim category, uh, which is a real sticky mess, and we'll talk more about that. Anyway, we're so glad that the murder investigation is finally winding down. Since last summer, we have repeatedly heard that these charges are coming. Finally, we can say it's happening and mean it.
2: Yeah, you're right. I mean, in late May we started seeing this cycle of uh oh it's happening this week, it's happening this Thursday and and every week since then pretty much has been the same thing. You know, we go through the same you know, treadmill of uh, anticipation and everybody gets excited. We start planning and then, oh, no, it's not happening. But, yeah, this week I think it was different because, you know, first of all, everyone in the aftermath of that one-year anniversary, when that didn't happen, I think people at that point knew, okay, well, it's not, you know, no one's waiting on anything symbolic. Um, they're actually waiting on particular evidence and they're waiting on being able to present that evidence in a manner that they believe is going to be effective to get the indictments. And so we started hearing the rumblings a few weeks ago about the timing, and just as we got closer, it became clear just the specificity of the sources regarding, okay, it's not happening in Columbia, it's happening in Colliden. It's not going to happen the holiday week, it's going to happen after. And over time, that's, you know, one or two sources, the chatter, you write it off, but then you start hearing it from more and more people, and then you start going to those credible sources, and you know as well as I do, these folks aren't the best bluffers. So if you've got something solid um, and you put them on the spot, You know, you can almost feel it through the phone line or even better yet, if you're having a cup of coffee with him, you can see it. But it became very clear over the last couple of weeks that, okay, this wasn't a drill. You know, we'd been through the drill, but this wasn't a drill. This was actually happening. And again, you know, we don't fire anything out unless we're sure of it. And again, having the family and the attorneys for Alec Murdoch confirm it so quickly, I think, once again, just goes to the credibility of those sources and how hard we've worked to build that network. So
0: we were originally a little suspicious about the state AG's office and SLED deciding to present to the Colleton County Grand Jury, as opposed to the state grand jury, which has been handling this case from the beginning.
2: You're absolutely right. That's a huge question. Why is this being handled in Colleton County, where the Murdochs have been rulers reigning supreme for decades, as opposed to the statewide grand jury, which has clearly proven that it's not afraid to take on the Murdochs. And I don't know the answer to that. And I'll be honest, the people that I've spoken with, those who are questioning it, have some really good questions. Uh, And I think the biggest question is you've got statewide grand jurors who have been exposed to all this information, who have seen all of this information, and who, in addition to that, have seen all the other investigations into Alec Murdoch, whether it's the financial crimes, whether it's the obstruction of justice in the aftermath of the boat crash, which I think is going to be coming back on the radar here before too much longer. They've been exposed to all of this information. They've been provided with evidence related specifically to the homicides. So why are they not handling it? It makes absolutely no sense. And I do think that there is some concern in the Colleton County grand jury, the fact that they're handling it and not the statewide grand jury. But hopefully the evidence is so strong that again, For an indictment, all you need is the probable cause. Again, it's not a court of law. It's not guilty or innocent. It's just a question of, is there enough evidence here to justify a charge? But yeah, it is concerning that it's happening in Colleton uh, and not up at the statewide grand jury, which again, has proven that it's unafraid of taking on the Murdochs.
0: One of the key differences between the state grand jury and county juries is this. The statewide grand jury is tasked with handling investigations that span multiple counties, like the financial crimes, whereas the county juries handle crimes that clearly occurred in their own jurisdiction, such as murders.
2: One of the theories is correct. You're correct. One of the theories is that because the murders happened in a specific county, that the jurisdiction is exclusive to Colleton County. And I think the logic there is similar to the logic after the roadside shooting back on Labor Day of last year, which obviously happened in Hampton County. So those charges, you know, he was sent to Hampton County for the, for the bond hearing, et cetera. And so everything was handled through there instead of through the statewide grand jury. And I understand that, And certainly there is logic there. And if they want to be deferential to the local law enforcement, local prosecutors, I certainly respect that. But once again, you've got a group of people who have been tasked to investigate all of these crimes. And I don't see any difficulty in pointing to this double homicide as part of a broader criminal operation, part of a criminal network. We know that Alec Murdoch was under investigation for these financial crimes right before The double homicide took place. Is there a connection there? Uh, We don't know, but there's certainly enough suspicion to warrant that homicide investigation being part of the statewide grand jury's investigations. And again, it just surprised me that this was taken out of their hands and sent down uh, to Colladon County, where again, the Murdochs have been ruling uh, without opposition for decades.
0: Grand juries are secretive and confusing and a part of the criminal justice system that so many really don't know enough about. So I asked Will to explain the difference between a state grand jury and a county grand jury.
2: Yeah, I think the differences between a county grand jury and a state grand jury, I think think you're looking at complexity of crime. And I think a statewide grand jury case is going to involve, like you said, multiple counties, but sort of a network of crime, not necessarily one particular crime. So, again, what the statewide grand jury has been looking at with Murdoch and what we've seen over the past few months as co-conspirators have been indicted on various crimes, as additional crimes have been filed against Alec Murdoch, what we've seen is that you've got this pattern of criminal activity, you've got this various facets of criminal activity, and you've got all of that activity taking place across an entire region, the the 14th Circuit there in the South Carolina Low Country. And so that's clearly a case that's tailor-made for the statewide grand jury because it's complex, it's broad, it has all these different facets. A county grand jury, on the other hand, you know, it's going to be like John shot Tim or Brenda stole from Beatrice. You know, it's a very it's a simple crime. It's something that's pretty easily documented uh, as as far as probable cause go. And it's not a big sort of involved process. So I understand, again, why you would take uh, a murder out of the hands of the statewide grand jury if you want to show deference to the local prosecutors, to the local uh, authorities, but again... The 14th Circuit solicitor here has recused himself, and basically now you've got Attorney General's prosecutors going down to his circuit in front of his grand jury and essentially standing in his shoes to present these allegations against Alec Murdoch. And again, it gives a lot of people heartburn, and I think it gives them heartburn for good reason, but once again, we just got to hope that the evidence is strong enough that any kind of doubt that anybody would have related to whether or not there's probable cause here, that that would be erased.
0: And we'll be right back. Hey, True Sunlight listeners. I'm here to tell you there is no reason to panic the next time you are searching for the perfect gift. You can now use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can find the perfect item for anyone and on any occasion. There is a lot of pressure around gifting. I usually have a hard time thinking of gift ideas for David, and sometimes I get super stressed trying to find that perfect thing. But now, with gift mode on Etsy, I can search hundreds of gifting personas and find so many incredible items. I actually found a ceramic shark serving tray for the sushi lover in my life who had almost everything he needed for the perfect sushi night. Almost. Another really cool thing, Etsy is a marketplace, not a seller, retailer, or manufacturer of goods. Entrepreneurship is very important to us, and we are proud to support the independent sellers and shops on Etsy. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try gift mode on Etsy now. As y'all know, we're out on the West Coast connecting with fans, meeting with partners, and having a little fun too. All the planes, trains, and automobiles can be stressful. But do you know what's going to keep me comfy and confident along the way? You guessed it, Viore. And Viore makes a fantastic gift for the people in your life who deserve the most comfortable and versatile clothing. Viore is an investment in your happiness. For our listeners, they are offering 20% off your first purchase. Get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet at viori.com slash mandy. That's V-U-O-R-I.com slash Mandy. Not only will you receive 20% off your first purchase, but enjoy free shipping on any US orders over $75 and free returns. Go to viori.com slash mandy and discover the versatility of Viori clothing.
3: Speaking of evidence, we'll do a quick rundown of what we know so far. First, is the high-velocity impact spatter that was apparently found on Alex's clothing from that night. We were told it could have only come from one thing, and that is standing over Maggie's body when she was shot. We know that investigators are going to be able to show that the weapons used belonged to the Murdochs. And real quick, we can already tell from at least one report in mainstream media that one of the ways the Murdoch camp might try to discredit investigators is by questioning the two guns, one man scenario. How could Ellick kill Maggie and Paul using two guns? One thing to keep in mind is that the Murdochs had a small arsenal at Moselle. Guns were readily available to them. I think this Will be one of the things that will become more clear after the indictment, but think of it this way if one of the guns had two bullets and those two bullets were used to shoot and kill Paul, then the shooter, who we can now say was allegedly Alec, can either reload or grab another gun. It's not difficult to explain. Okay, back to the evidence. We have also heard that Alec had gunshot residue on his hands. We know that Maggie was apparently lured there that evening by Alec, and otherwise had not planned to be at Moselle. We know that the timeline Alec gave law enforcement has been highly questioned, and that there is evidence discrediting his narrative from that night, including a video found on Paul's phone that shows that, counter to what he told Sled, Alec was at Moselle just before Paul and Maggie were killed. We're also told that there's other evidence that shows Ellick's movement from that night, which again discredits his quote unquote, ironclad alibi. Then there are the financial crimes that he's been accused of. Those might speak to motive. At the time of the murders, Ellick was a powerful attorney whose word was simply accepted as the truth. No one knew then that he'd been allegedly stealing from clients for years. On Tuesday, he was disbarred by the state Supreme Court, meaning he's now just a guy whose word means nothing. Finally, the last bit of evidence we know about was revealed to Fitz news readers last week, and that is the geofencing data. I'll let Will explain that.
2: Yeah, this was actually one of the more fascinating stories, um, I think, of this whole saga. It's just this whole debate over cell phone records of tower dumps uh, and geofencing, of course, which is taking a particular time and location, and then just trying to get a record of any devices or objects tied to GPS that have moved through that area. And it's a fascinating field, even outside of the Murdoch story, because you go into Fourth Amendment protections and there have been a number of court rulings recently which have called into question geofencing warrants. And courts have actually said, OK, you can't just ask for this information uh, and receive all these records of people who you know may have had nothing to do with a crime. You've actually got to have uh, what they call particularized probable cause, which means, OK, there's something beyond just oh, we think they were there at this time. You can't do that. It's not that simple. And so in this case, as you well know, like we've been saying, there's a mountain of evidence. You've got the forensic evidence. You've got the video and audio. And now we've got on top of that these digital records of where phones were moving at what time. And not only is that an evidentiary addition to this investigation, but it is also something that I believe, helped law enforcement as they are putting together this broader timeline of what happened. And so I think we're going to see once these indictments are unsealed and once the law enforcement agencies and prosecutors start holding press conferences and making announcements, I think we're going to see that this geofencing data played a huge role, not only as evidence, but in that broader timeline of what may have happened at Mazzell on that fateful evening.
3: Okay. So knowing the evidence is one thing. We still don't know what happened or why it happened.
2: Well, that's the big question is what cards are going to be laid on the table from prosecutors and from from investigators? How much are they going to tell us? What are they going to tell us about motive? What are they going to tell us about how it happened? What are they going to tell us about whether anyone helped him? Because again, there's a lot of speculation that he may not have acted alone. And again, I haven't heard anything to suggest that any other suspects are being looked at, but still there's been speculation about that. So they've got to answer some of these questions. Uh, and I think, the other thing they've got to answer is what took so long. You know, here we are 14 nearly 15 months after the murders. It was very clear again in the hours after the murders when the the announcements were made that there was no danger to the public. It seems clear they knew what happened. So again, why did it take so long to get us here? Is it just because this guy's so powerful, so influential. He's got such, you know, well-heeled attorneys in his stable. Is that is that what took so long? I don't know. But we do need those answers. And my hope is that prosecutors and investigators will not opt to keep those cards to themselves. My hope is that they put as many of those cards on the table as possible, uh, not only because of the public's interest here, but because of the fact that there are so many victims of the Murdoch family and of this criminal empire down there. And we all deserve these answers
3: we do deserve all the answers thinking back to last june and also because he's a public figure employed by the chief law enforcement agency in this area up until last september we talked to will about this remember will was the first person to stick his neck out and report that Alec murdoch was a person of interest in the double homicide
2: Yeah, it was absolutely brutal in the aftermath of that report coming out. And again, it was 48 hours after the murders. And obviously we were all doing what we do, which is go to the people who know. Go to people who have that direct knowledge of the investigation and say, what's up? What's happening? And so, you know, the same thing like this week. You get the information from the sources the best you can. And it was very clear Alec Murdoch was who they were looking at, who they were focused on. And, in fact, I don't believe I've ever shared this, Mandy, but I'll go ahead and tell you now. One of the things that I was actually authorized to go a step further as it related to Alec Murdoch, I was actually authorized to call him my prime suspect. But in doing due diligence and in trying to show respect and to wait and not rush to judgment, you know, my response was, well, let me ask you this, is person of interest applicable? Is that something that is also true and accurate? And all the sources agree that that was also true and accurate. Because again, I didn't want to rush to judgment. And so it was crazy. It was crazy to actually kind of show a little bit of deference to Alec Murdoch. And then you come out and use this term person of interest. And everybody's like jumping down your throat for it. And I was like, what do you You guys don't even know? You don't even know. I mean, we could have gone so much harder against this guy. But yeah, the reaction to that story was was very negative and as you know there's this very entrenched legal community and Alec Murdoch's just a pillar of that community and they're all in this clique and so they recoiled at it you know they were very upset they were it felt like they we were not just slamming Alec Murdoch we were slamming the entire profession and so yeah there was a lot of how dare you he's a grieving father he's a grieving husband how dare you and you know no it's not about that it's about again sources who know what the truth is Sources who we built up over years uh, of relationships and just being able to trust those sources and the information they provide us.
3: Remember the ironclad alibi? Shortly after the murders, Fitznews was first to report that the Murdoch camp was telling people behind the scenes that Alec's alibi that night was indisputable. They obviously wanted to prevent any stories that would paint Alec unfavorably. But ironclad? It's a heck of a thing to say. Whenever I heard that term, I was like, yeah, okay, we'll see. Frankly, if Mandy and Will hadn't been doing the work they were doing last summer, mainstream media might have been fine and dandy with the unspecified specified, quote-unquote, ironclad alibi, and done nothing more to push the story.
2: That's correct. The reports that we heard was that he had an ironclad alibi, that he was cooperating fully with SLED and with law enforcement, and that we were crazy to implicate him in any way, and that we were going to end up getting sued and embarrassed. Uh, And in fact, I think I put one of the quotes in the story this morning from one of those sources about, you know, you're going to look like an asshole. Well... (laughs) No, he he never had an ironclad alibi, and I think one of the things that's going to be so important about all this digital data, the geofencing, the cell tower dumps, uh, all that historical cell phone information, I think that's going to really minute by minute showcase exactly the movements, exactly where he was, and certainly, obviously, we also know there's audio and video, which goes against things that he and his attorneys have told investigators regarding the timeline. So, yeah, from the very beginning, I felt the ironclad alibi thing was bunk. But, again, you asked, did I ever stop and pause? Well, you know, again, we very early on could have gone much harder against him. And, again, I settled on the term person of interest because I felt that that was going to allow – the investigation time to kind of breathe. Uh, and also, frankly, you know, I wanted to hold out hope. That, okay, all these people are telling us he's not not guilty, he's a pillar of the community, et cetera. He had obviously snowed hundreds of people down there. You know, maybe he snowed me a little bit in those first minutes because otherwise I think, you know, when you get a source like that telling you he's a prime suspect, ordinarily you go with it. But we settled on person of interest because I think it was the responsible thing to do and it ended up being, you know, I think the right call.
0: So one major question in all of this as we move forward is whether the state attorney general's office will designate this as a capital murder case and seek the death penalty against Ellick. I asked Will Folks about this as he's more familiar with the state prosecutorial procedures.
2: Well, in a a case like this, you better decide quickly. And I think it absolutely would fit capital category If there's the sort of premeditation that we think might be at play here. And again, I'm referring to a financial motive or a a motive to sort of paint a picture of, okay, the family's being targeted by people. If there's a premeditation based on any sort of motive like that, um, a financial motive or a motive to sort of throw the scent off of this other investigation, the boat crash situation. I think if there's any of that, I think it's absolutely a capital case because there's premeditation, there's a clear motive, and as we've also previously reported, Liz Farrell reported this, that there is a belief that he may have lured Maggie Murdoch to Mozelle on that fateful evening. So that's another factor that would absolutely go toward a capital case.
3: A couple of things to know about the death penalty in South Carolina. Needless to say, it's been pretty gruesome here. If you look at the statistics, you'll find that South Carolina has executed more than 300 people since 1900. And most of the people put to death have been black. We haven't had an execution here since 2011 because of the pharmaceutical company's ban on selling the drugs necessary to do so. But earlier this year, our legislature decided to make the electric chair the default method of execution. And Ellick's attorney, Dick Harputlian, was key in having the firing squad added as an option. We have an inmate on death row who chose the firing squad as his option, but that case has been halted by the state Supreme Court while they decide whether the punishment is proportionate to the crime. Richard Moore is accused of killing a convenience store clerk in 1999. At any rate, a murder must meet one of 12 criteria set out by state law for it to be considered a capital case. The criteria are pretty specific. In fact, one of them is related to the murder of a solicitor or former solicitor, and another is related to the murder of a family member of a solicitor or former solicitor. But that's not what happened here, obviously. In Ellick's case, the AG could seek the death penalty because because he's being accused of two murders. And this might be more difficult to prove, but the death penalty could be sought if Alec were trying to eliminate Paul as a potential witness against him in the obstruction case or the Mallory Beach wrongful death case. Here's Will with more about how the AG's office might pursue this.
2: Well, they couldn't do it for a long time because the only method of execution was lethal injection and the companies that manufactured uh, one of those three chemicals in that cocktail were not providing the chemicals so only recently has that been ramped back up uh, but yeah this would absolutely be a, a good test case i would say <laughs> I mean this is probably the biggest criminal case South Carolina has ever seen and again we don't even know you know we're looking at these murder indictments as a or forthcoming murder indictments as a major development and they are they're a huge development in the highest profile component of this case up to this point but we still don't know how deep this thing goes we still don't know how many people are involved we still don't know how Many institutions are out there that played a part in it that need to be held accountable. So yes, it's a big moment in the case, but the fight for justice for a whole lot of victims continues. The AG's office can handle capital cases. They've got multiple attorneys in that in that office who are are certified, ready, able, uh, and in this case, I think they will be exceedingly willing. Um, to, to take on that challenge if that's what the decision is. But again, that decision lies with uh, the Attorney General, Alan Wilson. He's going to have to decide whether or not to pursue the death penalty in this case. And I do not envy him for having to make that decision because that is a very tough call. My suspicion is that the Attorney General will face tremendous political pressure not to seek the death penalty. and I know you're probably sitting there thinking, wait wait a minute. This guy may have, in a very premeditated fashion, with some very serious motivations, uh, killed his wife and kid in cold blood. Why wouldn't you seek the death penalty? But, again, we got to remember this guy was part of the club. He was part of the clique. He was part of that community of trial lawyers that wields so much power in South Carolina. He was one of them. And so I think the AG is going to face tremendous pressure from those people not to seek the death penalty, but I do also think he'll be facing a lot of public pressure from a whole lot of victims to go in the other direction and seek the death penalty.
3: We'll be right back.
4: For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts. So, you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. We talked to Eric Bland on Tuesday about another sticky issue
0: here. A very complicated issue, in fact. So remember, Dick Harputlian and Jim Griffin were Paul Murdoch's attorneys in the boat crash case up until his murder. They are now representing Paul's suspected murderer, which isn't only awkward, it could present a conflict of interest, meaning they might not be able to continue on as Alec's attorneys. This could be a big deal, because again, Alec could be facing the death penalty, and whoever represents him could be basing their success on whether or not he is sentenced to death if convicted. Everything is on the line here. So the question is, can Dick Harputlian and Jim Griffin ethically represent the man accused of killing their former client? We asked Eric Bland this because he is one of the top experts in South Carolina on attorney misconduct. Here is what he said.
4: So one, you have three things that you deal with here. The appearance of impropriety. Does it appear improper that Dick is representing Alex against his former client? The answer is yes. Is that the beginning and end of the analysis? The answer is no. Number two, are they substantially related? The answer is on their face, no. Now the complicated one is the third prong, which is did they learn something in the course and scope of the representation of Paul, either directly from Paul or through their investigation, that if they walked in the court to defend Alex on these murder charges, are they violating their duty of candor or did they become a material witness? Or, based on the rule that you just cited, are they violating duties to a former client?
0: We want to talk briefly about Ellick's potential motive in the murder. One consistent theory for motive involves the Mallory Beach lawsuit, which could put Ellick on the hook for owing millions of dollars for Mallory's wrongful death. So if, and this is a big if, the state focuses on the boat crash lawsuit being a potential motive as Alex's world was collapsing and Paul was the source of his family's downfall. Here is what matters when it comes to deciding whether or not Dick and Jim stay on the case.
4: Did they come into possession of information from Paul that would actually show Alex's culpability? And are they going to now go before a court in the murder case and say, oh no. Alex had no motive at all and no intent at all you know he he there was no reason why he would kill his son well if they're doing that and Paul had told them or they came in possession during that defense of Paul from investigators who investigated all of a sudden wait a minute Alex really does have implication in the Martinsley lawsuit now and had that because he bought him the alcohol he Obstructed justice. He tried to manipulate the police. He knew that Paul was using a fake ID. Now, all of a sudden, it starts to get problematic because now there is incentive for him to take out Paul. So, it's not that Paul's estate would bring a motion to disqualify Dick and Jim. The state actually can do it. The opposing parties can bring a motion to disqualify the other side's lawyers and raise these issues so it's really interesting you know on first blush you say oh they're not substantially related so dick and jim are fine for representing alex but then you got to say that's not where the analysis ends the question then becomes did they learn something in representing paul that now if they go into court to defend alex they're violating their duty of candor to the court
0: I asked Eric specifically, what would an example of information that Dick and Jim had that could present a conflict of interest large enough for them to be removed from the case? And the answer is, Paul says, my
4: dad knew that I had a fake ID and he encouraged me to use it, knew I was using it, and didn't do anything about it. Remember, Marks claims that he didn't supervise Paul properly, right? That would be motive. In a civil suit, Paul may, if Paul was living, right, if Paul was living, and let's say he never got killed, Mark Tinsley sued Alex and Paul. Paul may say, in order, his lawyer may say to Mark, in, in order for me not to have a judgment against me for the rest of my life that I'll never get out from under, I'm willing to tell you that my dad knew that I had a fake ID, encouraged me to use it. In fact, he sent me down to the store on many occasions to buy beer for a party. Now all of a sudden, it gets really sticky.
0: And speaking of sticky situations, when talking to Eric Bland on Tuesday, he brought up another potential problematic situation for the Murdoch family. So remember, John Marvin Murdoch, Maggie Murdoch's brother-in-law, was made personal representative of her estate last year. This was apparently after Maggie's sister's name was scratched off as personal representative and someone wrote Randolph III's name in her 2005 will, which is also super weird because a family of lawyers should have known that handwriting on a will ultimately invalidates it and eventually, John Marvin was made PR of Maggie's estate and Randy was was in charge of Paul's estate. This means, as personal representative of Maggie and Paul's estates, Ellick's brothers are in a position to choose their fiduciary duty over their own brother. A big question everyone has right now is will Ellick's family turn on him? In this PR situation presents a conundrum. Will Ellick's brothers sue him for wrongful death as PRs of Maggie and Paul's
4: estates? Randy and John Marvin the question is, who are the heirs now? Maggie has a will, so we know how her stuff's going to travel through. But Paul didn't have a will. Paul died intestate, without a will. So whatever assets he has upon his death would go to his mother, because he didn't have children, and he didn't have a wife. They would go to his mother and father, 100%. Well, his mother's dead, so that means it would go to his father. Well, now his father's charged with murdering his mother, and murdering him the state has a statute that says no he can't inherit from paul whatever paul had so now it falls to his next closest heir buster so the question is is randy going to sue alex for wrongful death of paul Now, if Alex was Bill Gates, uh, hell, you you would do it in a second. He would sue him because he has a duty. Listen, Randy, as personal representative, has a duty to the estate of Paul. He owes no duties to Alex, and he has to do what's in the best interest of the estate of Paul. The state of South Carolina is telling Randy,
3: your brother
4: killed your client, the estate. So we don't know whether Alex is going to have the money. And so Randy is going to have to most likely bring a wrongful death suit against Alex. If he's dispensing his duties to the estate, remember, he owes 100% duties to the estate of Paul. Nothing to Alex. He can't take Alex into consideration. When he accepted being PR for Paul's estate, he accepted it lock, stock, and smoke and barrels. And so he's going to have to now make a decision if these murder charges are brought. Do I bring wrongful death charges against Alex? Now he may say, well, Alex is broke and there's no money left because Tinsley's going to clean the clock. Bland's cleaning his clock on Satterfield. Bland cleans his clock on Plyler. Vandenberg cleans his clock on Pickney. And then the state is going to seek retribution and they're going to make him, you know, pay money to, you know, whatever the criminal charges are. However, he still may have a lot more money because we think he's hiding out money.
0: And we do think he's hiding money, for the record. And we need to know where that money went. Because the victims need to know. Because the victims deserve that. We need to know who is paying Dick Harpootlian and Jim Griffin and where that money is coming from. To be extremely clear, when murder charges do come this week, it does not mean this is all over. Not by a long shot. This is merely the beginning. For those of us watching this case closely, the news this week comes as no surprise. But we need answers about much more than who killed Maggie and Paul. We need to know why Alec wasn't arrested that night. We need to know why Duffy Stone's investigators were allowed on scene. We need to know why John Marvin was pictured with those investigators. We need to know what is going on at USC Law. Is this where corruption in our South Carolina legal system begins? We need to know how Ellik was able to steal millions of dollars from innocent clients such as the Satterfield family. We need to know what role Judge Carmen Mullen played in the Satterfield heist considering she is still ruling from the bench and deciding who gets their freedom taken away. We need to change the way judges are elected in the South Carolina justice system, which has proven in this story time and time again to serve as a playground for the corrupt and powerful. We need to know how the South Carolina Supreme Court, who finally disbarred Ellick this week ahead of indictments, allowed such widespread corruption to take place among officers of the court, and we need to know what they will do in the future to prevent that. Elleck didn't act alone, and most importantly, we need answers for the victims in this case. We need to know what happened to Gloria Satterfield. We need to know what happened to Akeem Pinkney. We need to know who killed Stephen Smith. We need justice for Gloria, for Mallory, for Maggie, for Paul, for Hakeem, for Stephen. And we won't stop until we get answers for all of them. And to end this podcast, I do have some positive news to share about Stephen Smith. Stephen's wonderful and fearless mother, Sandy Smith, who has fought tirelessly for justice for the past seven years, will finally be able to commemorate Stephen's resting place with a headstone and a ceremony this Sunday. The headstone means the world to Sandy, who wants me to thank every person who donated to the Standing for Stephen fundraiser. Last week was the seven-year anniversary of Stephen's brutal and still unsolved murder. We hope that someone out there listening has information, and now that the tides of justice have changed in Hampton County, that someone will come forward with evidence. We will be making noise and demanding justice in Stephen's case until we have answers. And those responsible for the murder, bungling the investigation, and ultimately obstructing justice, answer for their crimes. Stay tuned. The Murdoch Murders podcast is created by me, Mandy Matney, and my fiancé, David Moses. Our executive editor is Liz Farrell.
4: Produced by Luna Shark Productions.
1: <laughs> you know that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere online in-store on social media and beyond <coughs> do retail right with shopify sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com/crimes all lowercase go to shopify.com/crimes to take your retail business to the next level today shopify.com/crimes